are going to continue our series through the book of John. We're looking at the first few chapters of John as we kind of lead our way up to Easter. Before we do that, um, many of you ask how my trip to India was, and I haven't actually had a chance to really say a whole lot up here. So now that I have the microphone, I'm going to take some time and tell you about what's going on around the world. Because um, uh, I, I counted a great privilege to be able to go and see what God is doing in other parts of the world. And I consider it one of my responsibilities to share stories about, about how your brothers and sisters in Christ are, are impacting the world because um, God is doing great things. And sometimes we get a little bit focused on what's happening right here in Lake Country or in the Okanagan. And we have to be reminded every once in a while that God is at work uh, all around the world in really significant ways. So just a couple pictures up there. I was there uh, two weeks ago, so, uh, or I got back two weeks ago. This is a small church planting network that we have in Punjab. I talk about Bell Beer quite often. He's at the far left in the red there. My first trip to India four and a half years ago, I met Bell Beer. I loved his ministry. I loved his heart. And we said, hey, we want to start supporting you in a small way. And since then, we have brought on uh, eight other church planters to work with him. And these guys are working in unreached areas of Punjab. Uh, I, I, when, I, when I meet with them, I always try to give them a small gift. And so the gift that they are holding up there is a bag. And it's like a bag that holds a Bible and, and, uh, and notes and all that stuff. And I think it's actually really indicative of the ministry that they do. Because these guys, they go into villages that don't have churches to people that have never heard the gospel. And they just start telling people the good news. And they plant churches. And so uh, with this team of, uh, there's nine guys there. They represent 12 churches and a whole bunch of other ones that are kind of in the making. Um, and their, their heart is to really go to the places where the church isn't, where people have not yet heard the good news. So uh, part of our mandate, uh, I help run a missions organization, and part of our mandate is to go where the, the church isn't, to reach the unreached. And this is, a, this is a small church planting network that is really doing it. And every time I go there, I get to see new churches. So we'll flip it. So at the top left there, this is a new church. You can see it's small. They're meeting in a small outdoor patio. There's, there's a handful of families that uh, have just recently accepted Christ. This church is two months old. And so I got a chance to speak there and to encourage them. And then the church below there is what these churches typically become two or three years later. They're meeting up on the rooftop of a larger home. None of them have buildings. And it's about two or 300 people large. The one down there is about 250. And... Uh, the, the rate at which the church is growing and the receptivity to, for people to hear the gospel and respond in India is, is unlike anywhere I've seen around the world. People are hungry for the truth. And when they hear the truth, they, they accept and they respond. And it's really, truly amazing to witness it. And so I, every time I've gone to India, I've seen Balbir. And I see a new church that's planted within two or three months. I go back a year later and I meet in that church. There's 100 people. The year later, there's 200 people. So it's just, it's growing rapidly. And all of these people, 95% of them are first generation Christians. They have accepted Christ for the first time, not because of their parents or because of their previous generations. They have heard the good news and they said, yes, we're following Jesus. So uh, super encouraging stuff. Uh, so that was my first three days. My next three days, we support a small orphanage called Temple of Love, and they call me Chris Uncle. So um, that was my welcome. So I've been there one other time before, and so there's 35 kids there, and there's about eight other uh, children that grew up in this orphanage who are now being supported in universities. Some are now nurses. A couple are studying to, uh, to be pastors. 
And I mean, it really, it's, it's just an amazing place. Uh, most of these kids, they come from leper colonies. And so their parents are either dead or their parents can't look after them. So there, there is no hope. There is no possibility for life for them unless somebody will adopt them and take them in. Um, and so that's what this, this uh, orphanage does. And these kids are just, their joy is just, it's, it's palpable. It's absolutely amazing. Every morning they start the mornings with devotions led by the older students who are 14 or 15 every evening. They end with devotions, again, led by the students. Um, and it's just, it's just truly a remarkable place. So uh, one afternoon, I actually got to go to one of these leper colonies where some of the kids' parents still live. And so this is one of them. So the two kids on the, on the left there, they're, they're in the orphanage and that's their parents. So you might think, oh, it's, it, I wrestle with this because these kids are not being raised by their parents. But then when you go to the leper colony and you understand the culture, you would understand that there is no hope for them in those places. And their parents are so happy to have their kids go to a place where they actually have a chance for life, for education, for hope. Um, for something, because if you're a leper in India, you're not even recognized as a person. So uh, children don't have a chance to go to school, um, and you're basically stuck begging for the rest of your life. And so it is quite the thing to go into a leper colony. So on the, on the right-hand side, they all gathered, and uh, they asked me to share a little bit. Um, and it's quite the thing to go into a leper colony, and people are missing fingers and hands. Um, some of them, their, their feet are so eaten up that they're walking on stubs. And yet th there's joy and there's hope. And you know who the people, you know who's taking care of these people? Because they live off of charity. It is the Christians. It is the very, very small percentage of Christians in India that bring rice and food and help them. And it's the Christians that are opening up the orphanages to help care for their children. So it's an incredible uh, witness for the gospel, what is happening there. All right, we'll flip it over. And then my last week was spent here. And I understand this is just a picture of a bunch of people for you. Um, but for me, this was our last week, and this is the network of church planters that we have helped support and establish under John Shankarao. You guys came to our banquet two years ago. We had, or no, it was last year, we had our, India, our North India Focus Banquet, and uh, Reverend John Shankarao was here to share. And so uh, he's in there somewhere, and he's connected to all of these young men and women. We've helped train them through a five-month discipleship leadership course, and then every single one of these people are out uh, doing ministry of some sort. Many of them are church planters. They planted churches in unreached villages. Lots of them have opened up schools and orphanages. And uh, part of our mandate as a mission is we really feel like we want to come and encourage these guys and provide some education and training because most of them can't afford that. And so we do this every year where we, where we gather all of these people from all around North India and we gather together for four or five days to encourage and to pray together and to provide uh, some training and some education. And they're so grateful for that. And then, again, they're just sent out and released into ministry. So what a blessing. And I just spent my time doing some teaching, but also just sitting down and hearing their stories and hearing uh, the ministry that they do. And just story after story of how God is changing lives and um, transforming communities. And it's, it's, uh, it's super encouraging. So that's my trip in a nutshell. And I'm grateful, as always, to you, Creekside, for your prayers and for your support. Many of you are supporting this ministry, and we're grateful. And I can just say um, it is fruitful. We are seeing the kingdom come. Um, we are seeing the church grow. We are seeing people changed. And it is a real blessing to be a part of. So thank you for that. Uh, we are on a series uh, in the book of John. And we're looking at the first few chapters until Easter. 
Um, so I'll be honest this morning, I'm not really in my comfort zone of preaching topics this morning. Usually I like to get into the historical and the social background and, uh, and, and figure out what that, how that applies to our lives. Uh, today is going to be a little bit more theological. It's more of a theological topic just based on the scripture that I'm preaching through. Um, and it's a topic that at times can be unsettling for people. And so I'm going to try and bring some clarity to a topic that at times can be fuzzy. And so that's, that's my task this morning. The reality is, this is the Bible. This is the scriptures. And we want to be people that understand uh, what the Bible is teaching us. And we want to follow the Bible because it is the word of truth. And so that's what we're doing this morning. So John chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, open it up. We're going to work through the first eight verses. Okay, John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can somebody be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. So I don't know what your experience is with the phrase born again. For some of you, you're going to think of, the, of televangelists and you're going to associate it with a very rigid and narrow and fundamentalist uh, perspective of the Christian faith. Some of you might just think, oh, this is a weird and wacky thing to say and I don't want to be associated with a crazy movement. Uh, and per perhaps for some of you, it's just plain confusing. You don't know what this means. And you're not sure it has actually any relevance on your life today. So what I want to do this morning is wherever you might find yourself when you hear the word born again is to try to put aside your preconceived notions or whatever baggage it comes with and just try to hear it for the first time today. Try to just get into the text and go, what, what is Jesus really getting at here? What's this conversation all about? Uh, and let's try to hear it for the first time uh, today. Nicodemus, there's two things we know about Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, which was called the Sanhedrin. So as a Pharisee, uh, Nicodemus was a rabbi. He was a teacher of Israel. He was way up there in the, in the top um, level of teaching other people. He would have had disciples around him. He was a deeply religious person. Common practices for Pharisees at that time would be to fast two times a week, would be to pray a minimum of two hours a day, would be to tithe a great deal of money towards uh, the temple and towards God. So here's a deeply religious and deeply committed person, kind of at the top of his religious society at the time. The Sanhedrin, or the Jewish ruling council, it is the highest national body of government of that time. And so, of course, we know that uh, Judea and Palestine, it was under Roman rule. So the Romans had the final say, but what they did is they allowed the locals to govern kind of all the, uh, all the everyday stuff. And so it was the Sanhedrin that took care of the local Jewish law and, and any things that would have come up. And so Nicodemus was part of this ruling council. So deeply religious, lots of power in government. Well, remember that the Sanhedrin really was responsible for Christ's crucifixion. They kind of forced the Romans' hand, but they had enough power to kind of make that happen. So 
top level of society. That's, that's who this Nicodemus is. A great religious leader and, uh, and a political leader as well. And yet, he's still searching for reality. He wants to have this conversation with Jesus. So he comes at night. He comes at night probably to avoid the crowds and probably not to be seen. I imagine both were true, but he wanted to have a conversation with Jesus and that was important to him. Um, we see that he's real open. He's really open to, uh, to having this conversation with Jesus. Um, Nicodemus honors Jesus by calling him a teacher. He says, you're a great teacher. He says, you are a man from God and I recognize that you do signs and wonders. So unlike a lot of other Pharisees, Nicodemus, he's not trying to trap Jesus. He's not trying to get him into trouble. He's a pretty genuine guy. Uh, I want to show a picture up there. Uh, this is a Renaissance picture of um, the Renaissance trying to capture the conversation. And I like this because you kind of have, you know, Nicodemus, who would have been an older man at that time, for sure, because of the, the status that he was in. He would have been a wealthy man, and he's having this kind of cordial, uh, quiet conversation with Jesus. You know, other than Jesus being Anglo-Saxon, it's uh, some, probably, uh, probably happens somewhat like that. But, I, I mean, I just, I like the visual of this nice conversation that's happening between uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus, he's clearly open and clearly curious about who Jesus is. He wants to talk to him. So what's Jesus' response? Jesus, as always, has a very, very interesting response to people. He doesn't thank Nicodemus for the compliment. He doesn't confirm to Nicodemus that he is a man sent from God or even try to talk about the signs or wonders that Jesus has been performing. He goes straight to the heart and he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. See what Jesus does here as he does everywhere is he, he gets straight to the heart and, and his answer is, is, is so much based on the context, right? We looked at uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan in, uh, in John chapter four and his response to her was incredibly different. We'd looked at that about a month ago, right? He is very gracious to her and he offers her living water, which kind of represents this abundant life. And we know that the woman at the well, she was at the bottom of society. And so Jesus' answer to her was very different than Nicodemus, who was at the very top of society. Jesus understands context, understands where people are at, and he just speaks directly into their heart. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be reborn. Nicodemus is at the top of society and government. Nicodemus observes that Jesus is a good man. He observes that Jesus is a moral teacher. He observes that Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus, Nicodemus actually gets a lot of things right here. But Jesus makes it really clear to him with all of his religious and social credentials that uh, mere acknowledgement is not enough. That something more needs to happen. Something deeper, something spiritual needs to happen for Nicodemus if he wants to enter into and participate in the kingdom of God. Uh, all of the credentials and all of the top um, the, the, the top of society that, that Nicodemus represents, um, it's not enough. And his religion's not enough. And him just simply acknowledging Jesus is not enough. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Something deeper. Nicodemus is confused. How can this be, he says. How can somebody be born twice? Which is really, this is a fair question. Because uh, if we're looking at it literally, it doesn't make much sense. How can somebody be born twice? But what Jesus is doing here, as he always does, is he's using imagery and using metaphor to explain something deeper, something uh, more spiritual. Again, we saw this in the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He offers the woman living water. He's not literally saying you're going to have water. It was imagery. It was metaphor for abundant life. 
And so what, what is Jesus pointing at here for Nicodemus? Jesus continues. He says, you must be born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so here we get an explanation for what being born again actually means. It means entering into and participating in the life of God through his spirit. I'm going to unpack that statement a little bit in a few minutes, but uh, let's talk about the water bit here. There's some confusion about what the reference to water is here. Some commentators, some theologians actually see this as an allusion to baptism. They look at it as two stages of salvation, water baptism and spirit baptism. Uh, based on other passages in John and throughout the rest of the scriptures, this is, this is an unlikely um, conclusion, an unlikely answer. Um, I think Jesus is talking here about one rebirth. And so water and spirit, it, it's all part of one action. And that's what most commentators are saying as well. Let me explain it further. As it is with all of Jesus' teachings, he is alluding to so much Old Testament uh, Jesus is constantly alluding to Old Testament passages, and uh, he is the fulfillment of so many prophecies and so many promises, and we certainly see that here. And so I want to look at one of them. I could show you lots, but I'm going to look at the one that is most obvious, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Keeping in mind that Ezekiel is written about 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. This is a prophecy that God speaks through, that, that God speaks through Ezekiel. So let's look at it here in verse 25. God's prophecy. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So you can see a, a, real, a real connection between this passage in Ezekiel and what Jesus is referring to, right? Uh, here, here, God through the prophet is pointing to a future, a future time where his people are going to receive a new heart and where God is actually going to sp send his spirit into them. And there's going to be a new way of understanding faith, a new way of understanding religion. And it's going to happen through God's spirit. And notice in this passage how cleansing uh, refers to the cleansing of sin and it is all part of the same package, cleansing and the sending of the spirit. And so that's why it seems like this is one action, not two separate actions of rebirth. This is clearly what Jesus was referring to, one of the many passages, but this really being the, the key one. So as a teacher of the law, Nicodemus, he would have known and memorized this passage. As a Pharisee, you had to have the whole Old Testament memorized. And this, as a prophecy, would have been a very important one. So Nicodemus would have known this. And um, he should have been looking for this. He should have been looking for this time where God was going to fulfill this promise of God sending his spirit, of a new heart, of a new spirit, of this of this of this uh, language of rebirth, which is why Jesus says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Because Jesus, he's not just making something up here. He's not just pulling ideas out of the air. This is something that's deeply rooted uh, and, and expected out of the Old Testament. It's not a new doctrine. Um, and Nicodemus should have been looking for it. Should have been looking that God is going to send his spirit on his people and there's going to be this new there's going to be this new thing that happens, and it's coming. So keep your eyes out for it, which is what Ezekiel's saying and what many other of the prophets are saying. How do we recognize the Spirit? Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, no one argues that the wind exists. We can't see it. 
we don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but nobody argues that it's actually here, right? We all feel the wind against our face. We see the effects of the wind in the trees and the rustling of the leaves. Nobody argues there's no such thing as wind. Its effects are obvious, and yet it is invisible. We can't physically see it for the most part. And Jesus says that's what the Spirit is like. He is real. He is at work. He is moving. He's working in our world, in our lives. But most of the time, it's invisible. But its effects, the effects of the Holy Spirit in our life is easy to see. They're easy to identify. So I want to stop here and I want to reflect a bit. The term being born again is a term that evangelical Christians have really grabbed onto as a way to describe what it means to truly be Christian. And maybe you've heard, heard this before. Are you a born-again Christian? Or maybe you've asked somebody that. Are you a born-again Christian? It's, it's always struck me as a bit strange because according to this passage, there's no other option, right? Either, either you are, and, and that's what defines you as a Christian, that you are born again or you're not, right? Jesus, there's not a lot of other options here. It's, it's to be a Christian fundamentally means to be reborn, to have the Spirit of God in you. And so we don't need to ask if you're a born-again Christian. We just need to ask, are you a Christian? Because we don't need to make these, uh, these differences between somebody that's born again and somebody that's not born again in terms of uh, whether you are a Christian or not. Jesus makes it really clear here. If you are to participate in the kingdom of God, if you want to inherit eternal life, being born again is a prerequisite. Nicodemus, with all of his religious credentials and government credentials and even acknowledging who Jesus is, like he had an intellectual capacity to understand who Jesus is. Jesus said, it's just not enough. Like there's got to be something deeper, something more spiritual. You must be born again. And that's what this Ezekiel passage is pointing to. This time where you're going to receive a new heart, this time you're going to receive God's spirit into your life and things are going to change. Things are going to be different. Just like the wind, the spirit is moving in our lives and in the world. As you look at the scriptures, it talks so often about new birth, about new creation. It talks about the old is gone and the new has come, that we are living this new life. And, and, and it's referring to this, the spirit of God that is in us. And so I want to say it again. Being born again means entering into and participating in the life of God through his spirit. We are reborn through his spirit. So let's ask the question, how is this relevant? We understand that Christianity is not just an intellectual activity. We don't just admit to certain ideas or doctrines and then assume that we are a Christian. That's not what it's about. This is a lived experience. It's a lived experience because we believe in a living God who is at work in our lives and at work in our world and who invites us to participate in that activity. This is a lived reality. It's a lived experience. We get to be in relationship with the living God. And this is such good news. And this all happens through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's presence that is in our life that allows us to participate with God. When we become believers, his spirit enters into our life. His spirit leads us and guides us. When we pray and we are sensing the presence of God in our life and through our prayers, that is the spirit working through us. When we read the Bible and we feel like God is speaking to us or something is jumping out to us, and we're like, this is for me. That's the spirit of God teaching you and showing you. When we feel the presence of God in our life, maybe when you felt abandoned or alone or scared and all of a sudden there's like this tangible presence, this, oh, someone's with me. That's the spirit of God in your life being present to you. 
When you feel like you have the power to overcome temptations or sin in your life, or you feel conviction about something that you've done, that's the Holy Spirit in your life working and moving. He's real. He is active. We are called to be reborn. We are invited into this new birth. When you feel an affirmation of where you belong, when you are certain that you are a son or a daughter of God, that's the Spirit of God affirming for you. This is who you are. I don't think it's unrealistic for us to experience assurance of our salvation because the Holy Spirit does that. He affirms where we stand with God. As I say this, do you agree? Can you say, yeah, the Spirit of God is in me. I, I resonate with what you're saying. As Christians, we should. Don't take my word for it. I want to look at a few more scriptures here. And there's so many. If you type in the word Holy Spirit in Bible Gateway or another search engine, you'll come up with hundreds. The Bible talks so often about the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to jump on a few here. Clearly not an exhaustive list, but just to look at what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we're going to quickly uh, work our way through some of these. Galatians 5. Here's what Paul says to the church. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, we all know this one, right? Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against all things there is no law. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul is saying to the people, walk with the Spirit. This is a daily activity. This is a daily exercise. Keep in step with the Spirit. It's not a one-time prayer and then you're good to go. This is a continual relationship. A, a keeping in step with the Spirit of God. Walking with God because the Spirit is within us. Ephesians, it's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. For through him, Jesus, that's what he, who he's talking about, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So how do we have access to the Father when you are praying and you're saying, Dear God, how is that even possible? It's through the Spirit. It's through his Holy Spirit within us that is advocating for us in our prayers. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. When we gather together, uh, corporately, God's Spirit is here and he's building us up to be a dwelling. And his Spirit is present. And so when I get up and I welcome people, I don't say we need to invite the Spirit here because he is here. I just say we need to acknowledge him. We need, to, we need to recognize his presence in our midst. Chapter 6, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Even our prayers are to be done through the Spirit of God. Romans 8, just an amazing section of Scripture that speaks about the role of the Holy Spirit. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So uh, this is about as clear as it gets. This is the definition of a Christian. If you have the Spirit of God in you, then you belong to Christ. And if you don't, well, then you don't. And Paul's making it really clear here. And that's why this being reborn again, this born again, it is about the Holy Spirit coming in and being present in your life. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies that we are God's children. This is why I can say confidently that we should have assurance of where we stand with God. Because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to say, you belong. And to cry out, Abba, Father. That's the role of the Spirit in our life. Titus. 
He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, here's this language of washing and cleansing, much like this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, whom he poured out so generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, two more. Let's look at 1 John. The one who keeps God's commandments live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gives us. How do we know we're in Christ? We know it by his Spirit in us. And verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit ought to be a really big part of our Christian experience, of our Christian journey. And I'm not sure what your experience has been, but for me, I don't remember growing up hearing a lot about the Holy Spirit. I think in an effort not to be Pentecostal, in the circle that I grew up in, we didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit. But as I start reading and studying Scripture, I go, this is a pretty big deal. You know, the Holy Spirit's a, a major presence in our life. And as we talk about praying to God, we talk about walking with God, we talk about this connection we have with God, this all happens through His Spirit. That's how it's made possible. Clearly, uh, this stuff matters. And you can't read the Bible for very long without seeing a reference to the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives and, his, and the necessity of us walking and keeping in step with him. Craig Keener, Ox, uh, uh, Craig Keener uh, good theologian here he, in Oxford Handbook of Evangelical Theology, says this, The Spirit involves a lived experience rather than a doctrine to be acknowledged yet disassociated from life. This is a lived experience. I think that was up there. A lived experience. Keeping in step with the Spirit. George Whitfield, you may have heard that name before. George Whitfield, along with Jonathan Edwards and Jonathan Wesley, were the great revivalists in the 17th century in, in, uh, in England and in North America. And they would draw th thousands of people to their, to their preaching. And it was revival. It was calling nominal, complacent, unengaged Christians back to a more, uh, a more passionate and real life with Christ. Um, and you know what one of their primary messages was for all three of them? It was getting back to the Holy Spirit and recognizing that the Holy Spirit should be active and alive in your life. That we should expect this. George Whitfield's big um, phrase was the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. This is something we should expect to experience. This is something that the, the scriptures clearly teach. Is, is this active daily engagement with God through the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so many revivals, as you actually study revivals, so many of them actually come back to this, is a re-emphasis on the Spirit's work in Christians' lives. Because if we don't talk about it, we don't push it, and we don't read about, about it in the Bible, it's easy to become complacent. And it's easy to think that this is just an intellectual or a doctrine exercise. But it's not. It's a lived relational experience through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what happened to Nicodemus, we might ask? He shows up two more times in the book of John. In John 7, he stands up for Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And in John 19, Jesus is crucified. And he, uh, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, actually helps take Jesus' body off of the cross and wrap it with spices and with linen. And so um, we know that Joseph of Aram, or that uh, Nicodemus certainly stated admirer of Jesus. And we don't know this for sure, but I like to think he became a believer because he really put his neck out on the line to go to the Sanhedrin and say, hey, let me get the body down. Let me wrap it in spices. Let me wrap it in linen. I think I got one more picture up there. Yeah, so here's Michelangelo. And so there's a statue of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea taking the body off of the cross. 
and then uh, another Renaissance painter there uh, taking Jesus. But Nicodemus is actually uh, represented here. So we don't know. It, it, we can speculate what happened to Nicodemus, but um, I suspect he heard what Jesus had to say and seriously considered what that meant for his life. And, uh, you know, I would hope he became a believer because he certainly continued advocating for Jesus and, uh, and being courageous enough to get the body and give, give the body a proper burial. So uh, we don't know. To be reborn is, is to have the spirit of God in our life and to walk with him, uh, to walk with him and to know his presence in us. And this is something we ought to expect from our lives, something we ought to experience in our lives. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as a response, um, we're going to sing a song. And I, like I emailed them yesterday afternoon and they graciously said, yes, we will do this song. So I'm super grateful. I love this song. It's a song about welcoming the Holy Spirit and just acknowledging the role of the Holy Spirit. I want to end with this quote here by Andrew Murray. Laura and I are actually reading Andrew Murray together. He's a South African revivalist preacher, and he's got a book called The Deeper Christian Life, and this is what he says. He talks, um, oh, he talks a lot about complacent Christianity and how to get the fire back, and here's a direct quote from Andrew Murray. He says, there are many children of God who need to confess that though they are his children, they have never believed that God's promises are true and that he's willing to fill their hearts all the day long with his blessed presence. And Andrew Murray talks a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit and not settling for less in the Christian life and acknowledging that um, this is a lived experience through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So maybe reflect on that quote. And then as we sing this song, great lyrics, great song, think about uh, maybe where you're at and what your experience has been with the Holy Spirit and um, what it means to be reborn. So 